Good morning and a very warm welcome to worship at Hillhead. Our service this morning is led by Katrina and we will also listen to Laura sharing a reflection. Today we will hear lots of people reading scripture. Will, Grace, Rachel, Katrina H and Leo. In our recordings we'll hear our musicians Paul F and Leo and I will also lead us into one of our songs, which I hope you'll join in. Jeff will guide us in our prayers for others. Moje will be leading the Lord's Prayer. And shortly, Esther and Shay will light our candle. Now we have some announcements. And the first one is that I'm giving notice again of a church meeting which will be held immediately following morning worship on Sunday, 2nd of April, so in a week's time. Papers for the meeting will be sent out very soon, so look out for those in your inboxes. Our Minister Katrina will be on retreat from Tuesday, 28th of March to Friday, the 31st, but she can still be contacted if there is an emergency. And the day she's back, she's inviting us to the last Super Saturday of the season. Super as in soup. This will take place on Saturday the 1st of April from 10.30 to 2 o'clock. And of course, all are welcome. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday already, which will be an all-age interactive service as we retell the story of Holy Week. Please know that this year we will be unable to offer our own Holy Week reflections, but we are all invited to share in the ecumenical vigil at Kelvinside Hillhead Church from midday to 3 p.m. on Good Friday. Details of the special Easter Sunday services are in the key, which hopefully you've already seen, and for which we want to say a big thank you to Heather. And now it's time for Esther and Shay to light our candle. As we gather for worship, let us join together to become the body of Christ. Christ is the light that lights our way. May us glimpse Christ like this day.
God in prayer. Let us pray together. Loving God, closer than we can know or imagine, ever present, even when it feels as though you are absent. In this time of gathering, of worship, reflection and prayer, as we hear the story of Martha, Mary and Lazarus, and reflect on themes around death, grief and loss, we ask that you hold us safe. Hold us like toddlers snuggled on a parent's lap. And we ask that you would shelter us. Shelter us like a hen protects her chickens. And we ask that you would dress our hidden wounds with the balm of your spirit's tender touch. God, who meets us in Jesus, who has shared our experiences of life, love and loss, hear our prayers, which we offer in his name. Amen. Baba chapter 11, some of the first 19 verses. A man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the brother of Mary and her sister Martha. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Master, the one you love so very much is sick. 
Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, but oddly, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed on where he was for two more days. After the two days, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. When Jesus finally got there, he found Lazarus already four days dead. Bethany was near Jerusalem, only a couple of miles away, and many of the Jews were visiting Martha and Mary, sympathizing with them over their brother. Over the past few weeks, we have met Jesus in conversation with a number of different people, each story being a bit longer and a bit more complicated than the one before. Jesus has breached taboos around gender and race, around sickness and disability, and today he breaches the ultimate taboo, the taboo of death. Talking about death, loss and grief can be difficult and painful. There is a real risk that this story, or any of my reflections on it, may trigger really strong feelings in any one of us. And so we need to be attentive to our own safety and well-being. That's why I said, feel free to join online if that's easier, turn off cameras if that makes it safer. But it is also important, this story about Jesus, and these are important topics for us to think about. The domestic setting for this story in its historical context is unusual, with a woman, Martha, being the head of her own household. She shares her home with Mary, who we assume is younger, and a brother, Lazarus. Needless to say, a lot of scholarly energy is spent trying to explain this arrangement. But for our purposes, what really matters is these are close friends of Jesus. And his home is a place, their home, sorry, is a place they visit with his disciples, a place that Jesus is assured of a warm welcome. So the story begins with the sisters sending a message to Jesus to say that their brother is sick. We're not told what the sickness is and we're not told how seriously ill he is but we deduce from the context and what follows that he is very ill indeed. In fact, it turns out that Lazarus is dying. The original text doesn't actually mean sick. The Greek word is one that's used in other parts of the New Testament as lacking strength. It can mean weak. It can mean feeble. Perhaps it can mean frail. So I did find myself wondering, is Lazarus somebody with a chronic health condition that means he's not physically very strong? Perhaps he's more vulnerable than other people to illness or injury or infection. Might it be the case that he has a life-limiting condition and actually he is now in the end stages of that, what we might refer to as the end of life? It doesn't matter what the actual circumstances were. But perhaps it is useful for us in our own unique experiences of life to see that this is a story about real people. About people like us whose lives don't fit neat, tidy storybook narratives. And who at some point have to face the death of someone we love. The sisters send word to Jesus, a request for his physical presence, a cry of desperation, a hope perhaps that he might work a miracle, a desire that he would at least come and say farewell to his friend. But he doesn't come. He doesn't even reply. They're left all alone 
as Lazarus gets weaker day by day. As he dies, as the funeral is held and he's buried. When Jesus eventually does come, it's all too little, too late. Martha heard Jesus was coming and went out to meet him. Mary remained in the house. Martha said, Master, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask God, he will give you. Jesus said, your brother will be raised up. Martha replied, I know that he'll be raised up in the resurrection at the end of time. Jesus said, you don't have to wait for the end. I am right now, resurrection and life. The one who believes in me, even though he or she dies, will live. And everyone who lives believing in me does not ultimately die at all. You believe this? Martha answered, yes, master. All along, I have believed that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Martha, big sister, householder, welcomer of countless guests, hears that Jesus is coming. So she gets up, she puts on her game face and she goes out to meet him except that as soon as the pleasantries are over, she can't help herself. She speaks the words she needs to say, which opens up a conversation about theology. Often when I've preached on this passage, I've commented that this is surprising, that in her grief, Martha would be able to hold such a conversation. But as I thought about it again this week, I realised actually she's not so unusual after all. Over the years I've been in ministry, I have visited hundreds of people to talk about funeral arrangements. Some have been devout churchgoers with very clear and openly expressed beliefs. But far more have been people whose connections with organised religion are more tenuous and more tentative. Almost always, people will very quickly tell me that Auntie had a faith, that Grandad had been to Sunday school, that their partner watched songs of praise every week without fail, as if somehow they have to justify themselves to me. But then they go on to tell me where their loved one is now. Mum and Dad are reunited Uncle is the brightest star in the sky. My friend is now out of pain and at peace. These are theological statements, statements about belief, and sometimes statements about doubt, about the mystery of death and the continuity of life beyond what we experience here and now. The conversation that Jesus has with Martha is important because it normalises and gives permission for us to talk about death and beyond. For me, it's both important and helpful because as a follower of Jesus, it gives me a theological basis of hope.
Given the choice in a funeral I conduct, I will include what Jesus has recorded as speaking to Martha among the scripture sentences at the beginning of the service. Words, I believe, have potential to offer both comfort and hope, even if we don't actually know precisely what they mean. These are the sentences I use. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. He also said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. In the tender compassion of our God, the dawn from heaven will break upon us to shine on those who live in darkness under the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. God's mercies never end. Each morning they are renewed. So great is God's faithfulness. Do I fully understand any of that? No. Do I think it matters? Yes, I do. And do I believe that these words contain truth? Absolutely. Do we need to talk about theology, about faith and unbelief, and to do so in relation to life and death, frailty and disease? I think we do, and I think we see here that Jesus welcomes that. Martha went to her sister Mary and whispered in her ear, the teacher is here and is asking for you. The moment she heard that, Mary jumped up and ran to him. Mary came to where Jesus was waiting and fell at his feet saying, Master, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her sobbing, And the Jews with her sobbing, a deep anger welled within him. He said, where did you put him? Master, come and see, they said. And now Jesus wept. The Jews said, look how deeply he loved him. Others said, well, If he loved him so much, why didn't he do something to keep him from dying? After all, he opened the eyes of a blind man. (coughs) Mary has stayed at home. She's heartbroken at the death of her brother. She weeps openly and the powerful emotions are barely contained. When her big sister whispers to her that Jesus is here and is asking for her, she leaps up and races to find him. Unable to contain herself any longer, she blurts out her words. If you'd been here, my brother would not have died. These are the exact same words that Martha spoke. Yet this feels different. Whilst Martha appears to have expressed herself calmly, Mary's hot tears course down her cheeks and her body shakes with anger and disappointment. 
I think this detail is important. How we express our grief is as personal and individual as we are. There isn't one right or wrong way to feel or react, so long as that reaction is authentically our own. What can become unhelpful and even unhealthy is if, for whatever reason, we either suppress, push down our feelings, or repress, hold down and deny our thoughts and our feelings. Mary in this story is very much a feelings person. She's unafraid to cry. She's unafraid to shout at Jesus because that is her authentic means of expression. Martha seems a very different person, a person who has a calm and rational conversation with Jesus because for her, that's what is helpful. I think we need to be a little bit careful that we don't fall into the trap of seeing these sisters as a binary alternative. That we should be like Martha or we should be like Mary. Because it just isn't true and it isn't as simple as that. It is quite normal and quite natural when a loved one dies in the first stage to feel nothing. A kind of numbness. It's also normal to feel relief or release. Even, as was the case with my own mother, a kind of giddiness when a loved one has experienced a long, painful, debilitating illness. She was always glad when my dad died, not because she wanted him to die, but she felt that sense of release. Some people work through their grief quickly and others find it takes a long time. Some people will do it very much privately or with close friends and families. For others, counselling or support groups are helpful. I've sat with many bereaved individuals and many families and basically I always say something like this. However it feels for you is right for you. Whatever is healthy and helpful for you, that's okay. There isn't one textbook way to do this. Perhaps we need to give ourselves permission to be authentically who we are. Perhaps some of us need permission to feel or to not feel whatever it is. Do we need to talk about our feelings and to do so knowing that it's safe to? Do we need sometimes to seek professional help? I think, yes, all of those. And I think we see here that Jesus welcomes that. Jesus, the anger again welling up within him, arrived at the tomb. It was a simple cave in the hillside with a slab of stone laid against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. The sister of the dead man, Martha, said, Master, by this time there's a stench. He's been dead four days. It's just a detail in the story but it matters. When someone dies, there are a lot of practical matters to attend to. 
from registering the death and choosing a funeral director, to deciding between burial and cremation, planning the service, organising the purvey or the funeral tea or whatever you choose to call it, thinking about the flowers, the dress code, how to share the news, to say nothing about the longer-term practicalities around possessions and property, money and wills. Martha reminds us that we need to talk about practicalities. In my mid-twenties, I took out a mortgage on a house, and when I did so, I was advised to make a will. It felt a very odd thing to do. Was I somehow tempting Providence by writing down what I wanted to happen in the event of my death? At the same time, I knew that some of my wishes wouldn't be known by my family, and that some of my desires would have differed from theirs on some quite important matters, By setting down my preferences, I had a reasonable level of assurance that my wishes would be respected. It also gave me the opportunity to note down my favourite hymns and Bible readings, my preference between burial and cremation, and how my money, if I had any left, might be distributed. Far from tempting providence, it was for me a really positive thing to do, and I felt very much at peace. Just last year, I updated that will again. I haven't owned any property for decades, and I do now have a prepaid funeral bond. And both of those things give me a sense of reassurance that when the day comes, whoever has to make the arrangements will have that in place for them. I've lost count of the number of times that bereaved families have told me they never got around to talking about death, thinking about the funeral preferences, never mind making a will. Many people have never had to think about registering a death and it can feel overwhelming when suddenly that moment arrives. And the burden can be really heavy. There is a risk of anxiety and even occasionally regret. I wish I had known what he or she would have liked. Although it's really hard, it is good to talk about the practicalities around death and dying. It gives us and our loved ones reassurance that in that moment of grief and loss, we are able to do as much as we can what they would have wanted. Do we need to talk about practicalities, about end-of-life care, about advanced directives, dying, death and funeral plans? I think we do. And I think we see here that Jesus welcomes that. Jesus said, go ahead, take away the stone. Then he shouted, Lazarus, come out. And he came out with the cadaver wrapped from head to toe and with a cloth over his face. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. That was a turning point for many of the Jewish people who were with Mary. He saw what Jesus did and believed in him. So did this really happen? Can we believe any of the Bible stories that talk about people being raised from death? And let's face it, there are quite a few. I've heard preachers explain the stories of Elijah and Elisha restoring widows' sons from death as being a primitive form of CPR. 
There are assertions that the daughter of Jairus, the son of the widow of Nain, and even Lazarus were not actually dead, but in deep comas. Whilst I'm happy to accept that these events are plausible, there is no proof either way. And it's not essential to believe that any of them really happened. And if they did happen, there is an unspoken reality anyway that one day each of these people would die, whether of old age, illness or injury, because death is ultimately unavoidable. I think what's more important is to try and think why such stories are told in the first place. And for me, anyway, that takes me back to theology and a doctrine of hope. (coughs) Over the years, I have preached countless sermons on hope, and you can't do justice to it in just a few moments. But I want to reiterate what I have said many times, that Christian hope is not about wishful thinking. Rather, it is a resolute, determined, holding on to a vision that is something that is consistent with God's promises. So what is it then that as followers of Jesus gives us hope? Very often people choose Bible passages for funerals that express something of hope. Psalm 23, John 14, Romans 8, or perhaps for me part of Revelation 21 and 22, with a vision of a new or renewed creation where death and sorrow have no place. The truth is that death is a mystery and nobody actually knows what lies beyond it. But if I can borrow some words loved by Kerr Spears, one of my predecessors here at Hillhead, which he cited from the poet T.S. Eliot, who in turn borrowed them from Julian of Norwich. I think our hope can be summarised like this. All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Do we need to talk about hope, and to do so in relation to life and death, frailty and disease? I think we do. Not in a twee, pie in the sky when you die by and by way. But as an authentic conversation with the very thoughts and feelings, questions and doubts that we experience. I think we see some of that in this story. And I think that Jesus welcomes it. Hear me, dear Lord. In this my time of sorrow For even if I turn from you today I need to know your love is there tomorrow And new hope still can lighten up my way Forgive me, Lord, if in the tears of sadness my anger makes me take your name in vain. And life seems for a while to have no gladness, and I refuse to let you share.
Six days before Passover, Jesus entered Bethany, where Lazarus, so recently raised from the dead, was living. Lazarus and his sisters invited Jesus to dinner at their home. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those sitting at the table with them. Mary came in with a jar of very expensive aromatic oils, anointed and massaged Jesus' feet, and then wiped them with her hair. The fragrance of the oils filled the house. After the extended story described in John 11, the next chapter moves on to a later date. We don't know how much later. It could have been next week. It could have been months later, even years later. We meet Martha, Mary, Lazarus and Jesus gathered for a meal at their home in Bethany. And it's a beautiful scene. Martha is in her element as the host, ensuring that everybody is comfortable and has a delicious meal to eat. Lazarus is enjoying the meal and conversation with his good friends. And then Mary kneels beside Jesus, breaks open a jar of fragrant oil and pours it on his feet. Each one of them has found their own kind of resolution. Each is enjoying that moment. None of them can know what's going to happen in the next few days. They can only live in that moment. And so far as they're able, let tomorrow take care of itself. As I've pondered this familiar scene again this week, I found myself thinking about how we reflect upon and integrate our experiences in order that we can, can continue to live life fully and richly? What are the memories that we carry with us of those we have loved and who have died? What have we learned about the beauty, fragility and wonder of life? Do we need to talk about tomorrow? About what life might look like in the days ahead? what we might hold on to and what we might be better to let go. I think we do, if only within our hearts and minds. And I think we see that in this story. Jesus welcomes that.
the last couple of years, I've been involved in setting up and facilitating grief cafes. Grief cafes are regular, usually monthly meetings where people who are bereaved can come together to support each other. They become opportunities to remember loved ones and for communities to talk about their experiences of grief and loss. The conversations are semi-structured and open to everyone at any stage of their grief. The main purpose being to develop a community of peers to support each other through grief for as long as each person feels that they need it. When we lose someone, it can feel like a crack has opened up in the world. Like the very things that we thought that we knew, that we thought we could rely on, were fractured. The very things that have kept us steady. And sometimes this includes our faith. They no longer offered us that sure-footedness that we need to keep on walking. And as time passes, gradually those around us start to resume the rhythms of normal daily life. And again, it can feel as though they can no longer see this gaping crack in the very fabric of the earth. But in our loss, we can still see it. And we have to learn to live with it in such a way as to navigate our lives with this crack. I hope you'll forgive me for speaking in metaphors. I find that the word grief itself sometimes doesn't quite express the magnitude of the experience. So a grief cafe becomes a place in which those people can go when they are navigating their altered existence after the loss of a loved one. They are places they can go to talk to people, with others about how you experience life now. What's helping? What's still hurting? Grief cafes become a place where you can go for advice and support from those that are further on in the journey of grief. For support in dealing with well-meaning others who get it wrong. For support in navigating those difficult dates and anniversaries. So grief cafes become a safe space in which the bereaved don't have to keep up with the often unspoken timetable of grief and its processing. There's no timescale. And we never get over it. It just changes as we learn to live with loss and integrate it into our futures. So in short, grief cafes offer a place to go for support, for space, time, for love and for nurture. To be supported by a community of peers who walk the path of grief ahead of us. It becomes a place where we can reorientate ourselves and our very lives and live and learn new ways of living with this crack in our world. We come together in our prayers for others and in our prayers for each other. Let us pray. We watch and wait for you, God our Father. Bring hope. We watch and wait for you, Lord Jesus Christ. Bring love. We watch and wait for you, Spirit of God. Breathe life. We come together in our prayers this morning, remembering those who feel the weight of loss and grief in their lives. We thank you that there is life after death, that through you there is always the hope of resurrection. We come together in our prayers this morning, giving thanks that you call us out of dead spaces, to live in fullness 
and to travel with you up to the heights and through the depths. We come together in our prayers this morning, bringing to you all those who find themselves in the depths. The depths of despair, the depths of a lack of hope, in the depths of threats of physical violence, of conflicts, the uncertainty of when the next air raid siren will sound, the depths of physical or mental illness, the depths of doubt, of loss of faith. We give thanks that you do not leave us. You hear our prayers. In our waiting and in our watching, you are with us. We come together in our prayers this morning, giving thanks that you care for all of your children. And so we bring to you this morning our brothers and sisters in BMS World Mission, bringing to you those communities facing an increasing number of societal and environmental crises, monsoon rains in places like Bangladesh increasingly occurring earlier and in previously unexposed places. We bring to you churches and communities in vulnerable areas that face reoccurring disasters. God of hope, breathe your life and peace. We bring to you this morning our friends and the family of the Baptist Union of Scotland, remembering especially Central Church Edinburgh, City Gates Baptist Church Edinburgh, Cleland Baptist Church, and the Coastline Community Church in Pitt and Wien. God of hope, breathe your life and peace. And from our own church prayer diary, we bring to you the communications team, Jean and Walter, Paul, Rico and Ailey, Katrina and Ben, Diane and Nigel, Rachel and Larissa, Talash, Neil and Faye, and Leo. God of hope, breathe your life and peace on us all so that we may bring life and peace wherever we are sent in your name. This we ask through the resurrecting love of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Christ, friend of Martha, Mary and Lazarus, enfold us with love, fill us with peace and lead us in hope to the end of our days.
and the blessing of God Almighty, parent, child and spirit, be among us and remain with us always. Amen.